This podcast is brought to you by Free Buddhist Audio, the Dharma for your life. Our work is funded entirely by donations from our generous listeners. If you would like to help us keep this free, make a contribution at freebuddhistaudio.com forward slash donate. Thank you and happy listening. Uh, so the, the title of the talk I've got here is Good Friends. In a way, I'm going to be introducing <coughs> Kalyana Mitrata, which means spiritual friendship, uh, but with some special references to how it started, uh, the beginnings of it in, in early Buddhism. And so I want to start with um, two friends who were disciples of the Buddha, who you may have heard of, Sariputta and Moggallana, uh, very prominent disciples of the Buddha, who were very close. They were... Um, well, they were always together, pretty much always together. In fact, they had been since they'd been quite young. Uh, before they were Buddhists, they had both uh, gone off together looking for a teacher, and they'd gone from teacher to teacher, and eventually they couldn't find anyone that they really trusted, so they decided to go off in different directions. And they said, okay, whoever finds a good teacher first, will the first thing they'll do is to go and track down the other and, te- and, and tell him. So they did, and what happened was that Sariputta met a guy called uh, Asaji, or Ashvajit, who was one of the Buddha's very earliest disciples. And he was taught by Ashvajit, and he was very, very impressed. And so he haired off, looking for Moggallana, grabbed him, dragged him off, and they both became Buddhists. And they, they, they became very prominent in the Buddhist Sangha. Uh, and I'd say they spent a lot of time together. Now... In those days, uh, if you were a monk, as they both were, not only would you wear... You just stitch together some cast-off bits of cloth and then dye it this sort of funny, muddy yellow colour, and you'd wear that. And you'd also, once a month, uh, you'd shave your head with a razor. You'd shave your head. So, uh, Shariputra uh, was looking in the mirror. Uh, he thought, time, I had a shave. So he gave his head a shave. Uh, and he gave it a really close shave so that it was very, very highly polished. He might have even rubbed a bit of oil in, you know. So you've got to imagine this guy sitting there. He, goes, he loved meditating, so he was sitting in deep meditation. And night fell. The full moon came out. He's got this very shiny head, yes. And according to the story, an ogre was flying overhead while Shariputta was sitting there meditating and spotted his shiny head. And he could not resist swooping down and giving him a sort of a bop on the head. He just could not resist this. Uh, Meanwhile, Moggallana was not meditating. He'd finished his meditation. He was just sitting there relaxing in the moonlight, you know. And he was just watching his friend meditating. He just loved doing that. He loved to watch Shariputra just sitting there very calm and serene. And as he was watching, he saw this thing come down out of the sky and go bop on the top of Shariputra's head, and then swoop off again. And, well, Shariputra didn't take any notice. He just carried on meditating, and Moggallana was amazed and rushed over to him and said, you're all right, you're all right. Because he said, um, <coughs> see if I can read it to you. So great was the blow that it might have felled an elephant seven or even seven and a half cubits high, or split a great mountain peak. Uh, so this was the, uh, the blow from the, the yaka. They call it yaka, this, this uh, sort of flying demon that was going over. So it says, are you okay? 
And so I said, yeah, I'm fine. Yeah, yeah. So I've got a slight headache, he said. But apart from that, I'm fine. And Mogulana said, it's incredible. It's absolutely astounding. I have never seen anything like it. This demon came down, smashed you on the head with a blow that would have felled an elephant seven or even seven and a half cubits high, or would have split a mountain peak. And you just say, you've got a slight headache. He says, you are most, one of the most remarkable people I have ever met. And Chariputra said, Mogalala, he said, you are so impressive, he says. You see all these strange creatures. You see these demons. You see these ghosts all over the places. I can't see anything. I never see any of these things. He says, you are one of the most remarkable people I have ever met. And actually, if you read through the Pali, there's quite a lot of these little examples, but not just them, but particularly with Sariputta and Mogalana, of them cheering each other up by, in a way, saying, you're, you're amazing. I'm so glad to know you. You're such an incredible person. <coughs> I want to say a little bit more about that later. Um, and there are many, many accounts of their companionship, their close friendship. Um, and there are lots of stories of friendships in the Pali Canon. I mean, as you'd probably expect, you know, this was a sangha of people quite close together. They were getting to know each other very well. And there were some lovely stories of friendships. But there's something a little bit more significant here, however, than just saying, you know, there's, it's quite nice to read these accounts of people's friendships and people's connections with each other. Um, because friendship, or at least spiritual friendship, is seen as being essential, completely essential, in practicing Buddhism. And so I want to read you uh, the account from the Samyutta Nikaya, all 1,700 pages of it, um, of uh, Ananda's conversation with the Buddha, which in a way is the sort of locus classicus um, on spiritual friendship. So Ananda says, he just goes up to the Buddha uh, and says, this is half of the Brahma life. That is, Good friendship, good companionship, good comradeship. And the Buddha replies, not so, Ananda, not so. This is the entire Brahma life, Ananda. That is good friendship, good companionship, good comradeship. When you have a good friend, companion or comrade, you will develop and cultivate the path. So he's saying, good Friendship, which is Kalyana Mitrata, is the entire Brahma life. I'll say a bit more about the Brahma life in a minute. So it's not just friendship in general that he's talking about. It's what, he, what is translated there by Bhikkhu Bodhi, good friendship. The word for good is Kalyana, uh, which is also spiritual friendship, or sometimes it's translated as the lovely intimacy, the lovely intimacy. So kalyana can mean lovely, or beautiful, or auspicious. Uh, But it can also mean skillful, morally skillful, or spiritual. Um, So it can refer to a very, very positive friendship. And it can also refer to what we would regard more as a teacher-disciple relationship. So uh, uh, a monk might say, uh, so-and-so was my kalyana mitra, meaning that they were their their main mentor, their main teacher, a spiritual guide or an advisor. So that's what uh, Kalyana Mitrata, spiritual friendship, means. And that word Mitrata does literally mean friendship. 
and it's the origin of the word meta. So when we do the meta, the word meta means the response you have to a good friend. So it's very, very simple in a way. Well, sometimes we make it a bit more complicated, but that's what meta means. And so it comes from the word uh, mitra, meaning a friend, or mitrata, meaning friendship. Uh, and in fact, here uh, in the Triratna movement, we those people that want to make a special link with the Buddhist center or, or express their desire to practice Buddhism consistently will become mitras if they want to. So we use that word mitra, meaning friend, for them. Um, so that the entire holy life, or the entire Brahma life, um, uh, Brahma life is Brahmacharya. And Brahmacharya means a way of living which takes you towards awakening, uh, which takes you towards the Brahma realms or the Brahma world. Um, and I think that in a way that the meaning of Brahmacharya to some extent illustrates how you can show that Kalyanamitrata is so crucial. It seems to me it's a little bit odd at first to say that because if somebody says spiritual friendship is the whole, is the whole thing, but what about meditation? You know, what about practicing ethics? What about uh, cultivating wisdom? What about all these other things? Um, or about study and that kind of thing. You know, surely they are important. Okay, so there's a sutta called the Mahagavinda Sutta. Hope you don't mind me sort of quoting these early texts, but I wanted to sort of root it in uh, in early Buddhism and see what happens there. Um, and the question is asked of the Buddha: How does somebody um, who's trapped in time reach? the timeless Brahma state. How does somebody who's trapped in time reach the Brahma state, the deathless state of awakening? Um, And the Sutta says, or the Buddha says, by giving up all possessive thoughts and all thoughts of me and mine. This is how you reach the Brahma state. So it's a very concise answer. It says if you want to get to that awakening, to enlightenment or to that pure sort of awareness, you need to somehow let go of possessive thoughts and thoughts, even thoughts of me and mine, which is asking quite a lot, really. Um, So you reach the Brahma state by giving up egotism and selfishness, by giving up uh, all sense of I. And commenting on this, Sangharakshita says, thus the intimate connection between spiritual friendship and spiritual life starts to come into focus Spiritual friendship is a training in unselfishness. It's a training in egolessness. You share everything with your friend or your friends. You speak to them kindly and affectionately. You show concern for their welfare, especially their spiritual welfare. You treat them in the same way that you treat yourself. That is, you treat them as being equal with yourself. You relate to them with an attitude of metta, not according to where uh, the power between you lies. Learning to relate to our friends in this way will gradually come to respond to the whole world with metta, with unselfishness. So it's in this way that spiritual friendship is indeed the entire Brahma life. So in other words, it's a, it's a foundation. It underlies it because it is the crucial method of moving beyond self-concern. And, I mean, it seems to me theoretically you could probably move into this deathless state where you're not sort of at all caught up with self. 
just in a way by meditating, just by, by really sort of working on your habitual state. But I think even if you succeeded, you wouldn't really know you'd succeeded until you start to interact with people. You've got to be interacting, it seems to me. Uh, you've got to be involved with people in order to, uh, in a way, test where you are, but also in a way to cultivate that sort of selfless approach. And it seems to me that human needs merge gradually into the possibility of going beyond yourself. You know, fortunately, it's not something completely foreign to us to use our connections as a way of moving beyond ourselves, of becoming more selfless and more interested in others. And we start with, um, I'd say we probably start with a need for recognition. There's a sense that you want to be, you, you need to be noticed as a, as a genuine person. You know, you need uh, to be recognised for what you're doing and, and uh, what you are. Um, and then deeper than that, there's a need not just to be recognised, but to have connection, mutual connection with people, isn't there? To have links with people. Um, but not just general connections, also intimacy, something personal, something precious and special that's maybe possible only with a few, a very small number of other people. So it's not enough just to connect, say, with a group of this sort of size. You need also to have some much more intimate individual connections as well. I, would, I mean, maybe I shouldn't say what you need. I, you only you know what you need, but I would suggest that most people do need that, at least. Now, it could just stop at that point uh, where you've made those intimate connections with people. It's very nourishing. It's a very important part of life. It's very healthy to have that. But it might be that you want to go further. And if you use Kalyana Mitrata as a practice, then connection and intimacy can lead on to what you might call self-transcendence, going beyond yourself. However, surely... You know, from we know from Buddhist tradition and things, there's another side to the coin. It's not just to do with connection and intimacy. Um, couldn't you also say, for example, go up to the Buddha and say, ah, solitude is the whole of the Brahma life. Solitude is the whole of the Brahma life. Because that kind of thing is so important, doesn't it? Very close attachments can be very sticky. Um, maybe you're clinging on to the other person, sort of leaning against them. And after all, the most basic of all the Buddhist formulas probably says that suffering, everything that goes wrong in life, is a result of clinging or craving. So if you could just avoid everybody, then maybe, you know, you wouldn't be clinging, you wouldn't be craving, so you'd make a lot of progress. However, if everything was, uh, everything you did was in solitude, then what a self-absorbed life you'd be leading, wouldn't you? I mean, how would you go through that process of going beyond yourself, it seems to me? So solitude is important, but in a way, it's more that you're putting the solitude in the context of your connections, uh, rather than just having your connections pushed to the edge of your solitude. Solitude, in a way, improves the value uh, of your connections and the depth of your connections, because you've got to know yourself if you can really be happy with yourself, be at ease with yourself and get to know yourself, then you're going to be a much better friend, much more able to relate effectively to others. Um, so this is why the Buddha says, basically, the number one foundation that you need is spiritual friendship. Uh, and in the Magiya Sutta, uh, which is uh, in a much smaller volume, this one, the Udana, um, 
Uh, in the Magiya Sutta, you have this example of the Buddha talking to a young man, a young disciple of his, who's having a lot of trouble with his meditation, uh, and whose heart's release is immature, he says. And so the Buddha says, look, if your heart's release is immature, this is what you need. The number one thing that you need is spiritual friendship. Um, and then he says, out of that friendship, if you can, if you can have friendships, if you can have connections in that uh, Brahma way with people, out of that comes leading a skillful life. Out of the friendship also comes the chance to discuss, clarify what really matters to you. This is called Dhammakata, uh, the, the talking the Dharma. Uh, because you've got those connections, you can talk about what you really care about with other people. Out of that comes virya. In other words, out of that comes enthusiasm and engagement in what you're doing. And out of that, finally, comes deep insight. So those are the five stages of the path that the Buddha uh, talks about in the Magiya Sutta. Uh, spiritual friendship leading to uh, ethics, you know, an ethical life, uh, leading to dharmakata, talking the dharma, leading to virya, uh, energy, enthusiasm, and leading gradually to, to deep insight. So that's the that's the foundation uh, for why Kalyanamitra is regarded as so important uh, in early Buddhism and in later Buddhism. So I thought I'd say a little bit about this. You know, if it is so important, how do we do it? Um, how do you find spiritual friends? Now, when I sat down to think about this, I, it, it occurred to me that possibly the most precious resource that we have is the friends that we've already got. You know, rather than feeling I've got to sort of go on uh, some sort of an internet Kalyanamitrata dating site, <laughs> actually, we've already got a circle of friends. So it may be that we can make our existing connections more Kalyana, more beautiful, more lovely, uh, more skillful. Um, and I'll say a bit more about that later, but... Can you, um, can you say, though, that you have enough? And I think this is something where it's a bit patchy. I think especially in London, there are a lot of people who, in a way, don't have enough friends or don't have a, a good enough quality of friendship. Um, it's, everyone is so busy. Everyone is so scattered amongst so many people. Everyone is so evanescent, moving so often. It's really difficult. And I think there's a lot of... Uh, of loneliness and isolation amongst people in modern society, maybe especially, strangely enough, in a city where you're packed together with millions of others. It's so easy to feel separate. Um, so when you, make, when you make a new friend, it's not just fulfilling a need that you have, it's also a gift. Because after all, there are, you know, there are other people that really need those connections. There are people around that need those connections. I think we should feel that. We should not feel sort of behold and oh dear, you know, you're so nice being my friend. It's actually a really nice thing to do uh, to start to make special connections with people. Um, and in my experience, the best way to do that is to be engaged in a, in a project together. Um, I don't know what it would be. You know, it could be could be at work, or it could be something you're keen on a charity thing, or you know, looking after. Like I, I had two friends who used to just look after an allotment together, and they they made a friendship through that, through through doing that together. So having some sort of a common project is very often, I think, the best way to make connections with people. Um, 
And in fact, here at the centre, it does sometimes happen. If people come for a six-week course, they come out of it at the other end having made some connections, having made some friends. And I think, you know, if that happens, again, it's precious. It's, it's good to keep it going. Maybe if, you do, if you've been on a few courses here, remember back to some of the people that you really liked there. And have you kept in touch with them? Could you do so? Could you get back in touch with them, maybe? I mean, if you want to, I don't mean you should, but if you'd like to. And in fact, the Sangha is uh, a circle of interconnected friendships. That's the way it works, ranging from close friendships to people that you haven't actually yet met at all, but um, have, have at least a, a sort of a promise of a metaphor attitude between them. And in fact, the Buddha's teachings on how you make Sangha work are the same as the teachings on how you make friendship work, how you make spiritual friendship work. So when he, I've told this story before, but I don't apologise, when uh, the Buddha visited one of his disciples who lived in a remote township and he hadn't seen him for five years, so he went to see him uh, and he discovered that uh, he'd started a Buddhist centre in this town. He was surprised and impressed to find a really thriving Sangha there around this guy who he'd uh, taught uh, to meditate and and taught to become a Buddhist uh, five years earlier. Uh, many of these people had started meditating together. They'd become Buddhists themselves. So the Buddha said to Hataka, which was his name, um, how did you build up such a thriving Sangha? And he reminded the Buddha, well, you taught me how to do it. You taught me uh, the four means of unification, the four means of, of Sangha building. Uh, and what he said was, when I can make a connection with someone through giving, then I practice generosity. When I can make a connection with someone through um, affectionate communication, then I speak to them with kindness. When I can make a connection with someone through helping them out or teaching them, then I'll do that. Um, And when I can, best of all, when I can get into deep harmony with someone through empathising and through discovering how much we have in common as two struggling human beings, then that is the approach I take. I make the connection through that empathising. Um, so generosity, kindly speech bringing benefit and empathy those are the four means, the four means of unification and I think this gives you some clues uh, it may not be obvious immediately but it gives you some clues in a way these are the practices uh, the other regarding practices that will tend naturally to make friendships blossom um, with yourself and with any group in which they are being done uh, generosity and kindly speech and uh, beneficial activity and empathising Now, having said all this, and you know, I'm starting to uh, inspire myself. As I said, this is good stuff, isn't it? This, but I had to also reflect on my own deficiencies here, you know, which I, I may share with some other people, especially more introverted people, uh, which which I would call reticence in friendship. Um, I find the stories inspiring. I do have some good friends, and I have a, a deep yearning, I think, for that kind of connection uh, of mutual. Um, responsiveness with other people. Uh, Something that's not too sort of just based on need, you know. Um, Where we can laugh and be open and share experiences and help each other out. So I do have that feeling, definitely. But to be frank, I also feel this reticence. I think I'm a bit of a loner. I enjoy my own company. I feel happy by myself. And it is quite a struggle 
to enter the world of another person. You know, you can be nice to people, you can enjoy their company, but there comes a point where there's a little bit of a, um, a barrier to get over. And that barrier is where you're actually prepared to step into their world. And maybe they've been prepared to step into your world as well. And it's, it's a little <coughs> bit dangerous feeling doing that. Uh, and I can feel <coughs> unwilling to do it as well. Another person's world is so vast and complicated and unpredictable. Where do you begin? <coughs> and it's great, you know, when you do get to know somebody, it's very nice to ask them about their life, even listen to their whole life story. Um, it's good to ask them what really matters to them as well. But these are quite hard topics to bring up. And the other side of it, I think, is that underneath everybody's history, um, pretty much always, there is quite a lot of pain and disappointment and anguish, as well as all the good things. I don't know if it's just that, but there is that. And if you're going into somebody's world, you can't really avoid that. You've got to, in a way, say, I'm prepared to be with your darker side, your shadow side, and also your, uh, your despair and your, and your uh, frustration and all that kind of thing. And some people are extraordinarily open, extraordinarily generous when it comes to accepting and taking in uh, the pain and frustration that others have inevitably feel. But I do feel a sort of reticence with it. You know, I can feel that sort of um, unwillingness there. It's, it's, a diff- it's a tough one, you know. So I don't want to say that the Kalyanamitra Tower as a practice is an easy practice. But then, you know, whatever practice that really touches you, that you try you will find a barrier. And quite often, it's quite easy at first. You know, oh, this is nice, mindfulness is nice. And you get to a point where you find, oh, I don't seem to be able to get any further. It's going to take some special effort to get over that barrier. And I think that goes for spiritual friendship. But maybe, you know, talking it all over, you know, can help to some extent. Maybe uh, sharing experience on it can help. Um, So I think the first thing, when you're, when you're getting to know people, to remember... I'm so, sorry, I'm probably saying things that are really obvious, but the first thing to remember is that we are all the centre of our own universe. Um, and that's fine. We are the most important being in the universe. Uh, and, it's, and it's quite good... I mean, sometimes we tell ourselves, oh, no, I'm not, I'm really insignificant, and so on. But actually, in practical terms, we are in the middle, because that's where our awareness is, you know, so it's inevitable, really, isn't it? And if you go back to the Pali stories, there's once um, a woman called Malika, and she was sitting on her balcony with her husband, Pasenadi, and they were a very well-known couple in Buddhist circles, being very, very close to each other, a very loving couple. Um, and as he was looking at her, uh, the husband looking at the wife, um, he was, he was fat, by the way, but I don't know if that affects this story at all. As he was looking at his wife, um, he said... Malika, is there anyone dearer to you than yourself? And you can imagine he was probably thinking she'd be looking, gazing into his eyes and say, Oh, Pasenadi, how dear husband, of course you are far dearer to me than myself. Um, but she was wise, actually, and she was, after all, a Buddhist and a personal disciple of the Buddha. And she said, No, Pasenadi, there is no one dearer than myself. Mm-hmm. And Pasenadi had to think, keen think it through, and think, and he said, "Well, if I'm honest, that's true for me as well. Mm-hmm. 
there is no one dearer than myself. And both of them mention the conversation to the Buddha later, and he says, do you realise what this means? This means that everybody has this powerful protectiveness and love for their own life, for their own interests. If only we could see that, if only we could recognise that, uh, that this is so universal, then we have this powerful emotion in common, we all have it in common, then we would not cause pain to others. This is the lesson of Buddha. Maybe it's not the obvious lesson. You, you might, maybe you think he should say, you're really selfish, you should think about other people, you shouldn't put yourself first. But no, what he says is, no, what this means is that compassion is essential. Because we all have that same uh, need for our own welfare. Uh, that's why we start the Metta Bhavna with uh, a stage you know, reminding ourselves that we want our own welfare. We're at the centre of our own universe. If we could only see that we have this emotion, uh, we would never cause pain to others. And strangely enough, this kind of emotion, if you recognise it, can actually make you more considerate rather than more selfish. You realise your words and actions can have a real impact on other people. And so I think this comes out to uh, the next thing I wanted to say about making connections and making friendships. Uh, again, which is probably very obvious, but it's, it's the value of appreciation and encouragement. Um, if you recognise the best in other people, then the best will grow. The best, it's as if the sunshine, uh, if, if people are a plant, the sunshine and the rain that people need is recognition, is appreciation, is encouragement, uh, recognising the best. So I think it's best to give rather more appreciation and encouragement than we think, might think was appropriate. Just go a little bit, you don't have to go completely over the top, but just go a little bit more. Don't be too embarrassed about it. Um, so an example of this from the Pali Canon, Ananda, close friend of the Buddha, disciple, as you probably know, and the Buddha's personal attendant for many years. And when Ananda knew that the Buddha was going to die, he was quite despondent. Uh, the thought of having such a kind friend die and losing him. And when the Buddha realised what he was feeling, the Buddha said to him this, Now, for a long time, Ananda, you have served me with loving kindness, indeed word and thought, graciously, pleasantly, with a whole heart and beyond measure. Great good have you gathered, Ananda. Now you should put forth energy, and soon you too will be liberated. And he went on to praise Ananda to everybody, and this was private. But then he went on, he called the others together, and he said, look, I want to say something about Ananda. And he said, capable and judicious is Ananda. He knows the best time for visitors to come and see me, because Ananda was basically the Buddha's PA. Um, and what is more, if people should go to see Ananda, they become joyful on seeing him. And if he then speaks to them about the Dharma, they're made joyful by the discourse. And when he becomes silent, they are disappointed. So this was, I just gave that a little example of that appreciation. Again, there's a lot of it in the Pali Canon, of mutual appreciation going on. I think it's best if the appreciation is fairly, as, as in the Buddha's case, fairly specific. You know, not just say, oh, and, uh, what a great guy, fantastic boy. You, know, you actually say specifically what it is that he's good at. Um, so you might observe how well your friend deals with a difficult neighbour or upset relative or something like that, and just mention it. 
And to, in order to do that, of course, you need to know somebody, don't you? You need quite a lot of continuity to get to that point. Um, and then you can be really appreciative, appreciative and encouraging. Um, and there is a principle here that comes out of mindfulness practice that you probably know about, which is that what you give your attention to uh, thereby grows stronger. So if you give your attention to the best in another person, it will grow stronger. The positive will grow stronger. If you give your attention to what is irritating in them, to where they fall short, well, it may well be that it's that part of them that grows stronger. I don't mean one can completely ignore that, of course, inevitably, but if you keep harping on about it, it's probably more helpful to wait until there's something um, quite um, admirable that arises, and you can say, oh, that was great. That was great. You didn't forget to clean the bath yesterday. (laughs) I'm so pleased. I'm so grateful. And if it is a genuine, heartfelt connection, then sometimes you will get annoyed with each other, won't you? I think it's inevitable. Um, But what I feel is, if you know somebody well, I'm sort of assuming this, because of the fact that you know them well and want to spend time with them, uh, then deep down, there are two things that you do actually know about that person. Um, One is uh, that they're not at heart malicious. Yeah? And the other one is that they're not completely stupid. And I mention this because I think when we become critical of people and say things to them and complain, there's often a little seed of an assumption in what we say that either they're being nasty... Or they're being really stupid. Uh, I, mean, you might, I bet you've said this to somebody before. You said, "You, that was really stupid. You know, how could you do that?" Or that was horrible. How could you? But they're not actually a horrible person, and they're not. They may be slightly stupid, and they might be slightly horrible. We all are, aren't we? You know, but not completely. Um, so I think it's quite a good reflection. So I use this as a little ma- mantra to myself. You know, especially if I am getting irritated. Somebody said. I say to myself, not malicious, not stupid. Not malicious, not stupid. <laughs> so it's easy to jump to that conclusion they're being nasty, that they're, or that they're missing something completely obvious. And maybe we rail against them for being so horrible, or being condescending, or we sort of explain something really obvious to them. You know, obviously you haven't noticed that the bath is dirty. On the other hand, it can be quite tempting, this is the other side of this, isn't it, just to smooth everything over and pretend everything's marvellous and and that there isn't anything (coughs) wrong, and sometimes there are things wrong, and there may be resentment simmering under the surface, and and that's horrible, isn't it, it go really sour. Um, And they do say that honest collusion is better than dishonest collusion. In other words, taking a risk of a clash in order to make sure things are there in the open and are not completely hidden. Um, maybe something's gone wrong uh, that concerns something that really is actually important to you, you know, and you want to sort of express that, that it is important, and you feel maybe badly let, let down, and ignoring that isn't doing anybody a favour. I've got a few uh, sort of last thoughts um, to round this off. Um, there are loads and loads of things here, aren't there, that we can talk about, and I'm sure they'll come up in future talks in the series. Um, so one thing is avoid mind reading. 
don't assume that you know what's going on in somebody else's mind. I think this is something that often gets in the way of connections and friendships, isn't it? We jump to a conclusion about what they really think. Um, but we don't really know. Um, assumptions can build up on both sides as well in a relationship until, in a way, a problem has been created out of a complete vacuum because you're both bouncing assumptions back and forth, neither of which are actually rooted in reality. So you can just ask. And the other thing that uh, occurred to me is that maybe there are sometimes limitations on friendships. Don't hope that every friendship will be a wonderful Sariputta and Mogalana type friendship. Sometimes there are limitations. You say, well, that's fair enough. It only goes so far, but it's really nice. I like to see them. You can still be good friends. Uh, Another big topic, I suppose, is can lovers be friends? Um, Can parents be friends with their children? And can children be friends with their parents? Um, Well, it seems to me any human being can potentially be a friend to any other human being. I can't see that there need to be any limits put on it. And it seems to me also that in a close romantic or sexual or parental bond, there can be a process of maturing that one can allow to happen. Again, I'm probably saying the obvious, but um, the more primitive and sort of need uh, and craving-based side of it um, gets out of date, and you can see each other as two independent human beings. So can a self-oriented, what starts as a self-oriented love, can that turn into a disinterested love? Yeah, definitely. It definitely can. I'm sure it can. If you are in one of those very long-term relationships, it's very easy to get into a standard script in the way you communicate. Um, And so somehow freshness needs to come in to allow it to move on, acknowledging that you are both changing people. So if you're, for example, if you're stuck in a particular role, which is very easy. I had a friend who, uh, she told me, she went through the relationship she's had, and she was always the rescuer. It was always a man who needed rescuing, you know. Mm -hmm. Uh, and it was very frustrating for her when she realised the pattern. Uh, the other thing, the last thing that occurred to me, is that endings are important. Um, and I mention this, endings and partings, because every connection we have will end. If only with death. You know, at least one of the parties will die. Well, they both will, but I mean, one of them will before the other, you know, and then that's an ending, isn't it? But very often, I'm afraid, there are other reasons we move apart or we drift apart emotionally or we move apart geographically and things will end. And I think it's good to acknowledge the feeling of those ending. Um, it's important to realise that there really is something lost when you part. So grief and a feeling of loss is, in, is appropriate you don't have to sort of be all stiff and think, no, it doesn't matter to me, it's all it's fine, fine, you can take it or leave it. It's not really like that. Whether it's the ending of a sexual relationship or of a friendship, you might be very blase and non-attached, but you're probably fooling yourself. And I mentioned Sariputra and Moggallana. They died, They were the Buddha's, two of the Buddha's most important disciples, and they died before the Buddha. And the Buddha really missed them. You know, he's an enlightened person, but he... He said he just felt there was a void there in the Sangha. There was a gap in the Sangha where they had been for so many years. Uh, and he, he was very open about expressing this uh, sense of loss. Okay, so although myself I'm rather a reticent friend, as I say, but I am convinced of the truth of what Buddha, the Buddha said to Ananda. The good friendship is the entire Brahma life. Kalyanamitrita is the entire Brahma life. 
And it seems to me that friendship, and this is based on a certain amount of experience uh, in a Buddhist movement, that friendship is the difference between whether the Dharma takes root in somebody or whether it doesn't. In other words, someone might come along to something like this, they enjoy it, they learn a bit about Buddhism, they get some meditation, they go away. But if they haven't made any personal connections with other people who are care about the same kind of practices, then probably the Dharma won't, won't stay with them. Uh, there may be exceptions to this, but I think if there are, they're very, very rare. It's a rare person who can practice the Dharma without connection and support. We hope you enjoyed this week's podcast. Please help us keep this free. Make a contribution at freebuddhistaudio.com forward slash donate. And thank you 